0: Welcome to season four of The Hurt by the Female Pain Docs. We have a jam-packed season. By popular demand, we will actually be covering lots of women's health issues, including painful bladder syndrome, pelvic floor physical therapy, migraines in pregnancy, and more. Now, a lot has happened since our last season in the world of women's health, and specifically reproductive rights. In this episode, we will shed light on the evolving history of women's health and specifically in the United States. Now, if you haven't already checked out our first episode, do check it out. In that episode, we talk about the history of women's health in a global setting, which overall was not as well studied as women's health until fairly recently. As you can imagine, this has been the theme in the United States as well. And these gender inequalities don't just exist in the setting of medicine and research for women's health, but also in actual health care. So, today we will be highlighting the evolution of reproductive healthcare in the United States. This episode is not meant to be political, but rather an objective collection and explanation of the history and evolution of women's rights in the healthcare setting. Now, our goal is for you, our listeners, to better understand how healthcare has changed over the years and how this may impact you now and in the future. So, let's start.
1: Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira akir and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the Female Pain Docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more.
0: The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary.
1: Okay, so first, let's begin by defining what women's reproductive health care actually refers to. So this refers not just to physical health, but also mental and social issues for women. So this includes women's rights and sexual health as well which covers contraception, sexually transmitted diseases, pregnancy, termination of pregnancy, and more. You know, women have increasingly been taking control of their healthcare by becoming more empowered patients and becoming educated in their own health for the past several decades. But unfortunately, in a largely male-dominated healthcare system, there's still a lot of distrust. There are many reasons this distrust exists and has even been perpetuated, including lack of access. Lack of patient transparency by physicians, societal stigma, and more. Now, although there have been government backed initiatives over the past several years, this is still not enough, and we still have a long way to go to support women's health. So, let's get into a little bit of history of women's health in the
0: US. Dr. P. So, unfortunately, a lot of the history of women's health is based on the fact that most physicians and scientists in general, historically, were men. And as much as they tried to understand objectively the happenings of the female body, it was just not the same. So for example, up until the 19th century, hysteria was a diagnosed physical and mental illness, diagnosed only in women. And in fact, the word hysteria comes from the Greek word for uterus. Some of our listeners may remember this from the first season. And when physicians couldn't quite identify the reasons for a woman's condition, it was conveniently attributed to her uterus. So for example, even chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia or endometriosis or even epilepsy were attributed to a woman's uterus and therefore blamed essentially for a woman's emotional excess. And as time progressed, the perception of hysteria returned to a more medical disorder in the 19th century, because now it was believed that hysteria was a disease starting in the brain and possibly an emotional or psychological condition. And again, the actual definition and treatment of hysteria changed over time, but it wasn't until Sigmund Freud suggested that hysteria could also be applied to men that things started to change. And that really brings us to modern medicine. As a field of psychiatry evolved in Western medicine, hysteria diagnoses were replaced with anxiety and depression. With further globalization after World War II and further westernization of medicine, mental health expectations changed, and now anxiety and depression were expected in the post-World War II generation, leading to a huge increase in these diagnoses rather than calling it generically just hysteria. And as more medical advancements were made, issues that were previously attributed to hysteria, things like epilepsy or even infertility, these were also increasingly replacing the actual diagnosis of hysteria. And finally, in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, finally removed hysteria as a diagnosis. So as you can tell,
1: gender bias has existed for a long time in the field of medicine, not just in terms of diagnosis, but also treatment. And this is for all types of medical diagnoses, such as mental health, neurologic diagnoses, and more, not just gynecologic. But we want to focus a little bit on reproductive medicine aspect of women's health in this episode. So looking into the history of obstetrical and gynecological practices, one can see that women have historically and objectively speaking had limited knowledge and choices when it came to their own bodies. It wasn't until relatively recently, as in the past 150 to 200 years or so, that more women were able to get an education and finally be able to advocate for other women once they realized the gender bias and gender inequalities present in medicine. One such person was Alice Stockholm. So she was an OBGYN from Chicago and in 1854 became the fifth woman to become a doctor in the United States. The first one was Elizabeth Blackwell in 1849, only five years prior. Now, both women persevered for their medical education despite their male colleagues mocking them and despite the lack of support for women to have an education in that era. But despite this, both women vouched for women's rights and women's health. Dr. Stockholm in particular even wrote a book called Tacology dedicated to educating women in the public on a woman's body. It was pretty taboo in that time, not only for women to be physicians, but for those women physicians to openly educate other women on their own bodies. So for this, she was shunned and even spent a little time in jail. She still promoted gender equality, birth control, female sexual fulfillment, and more. So the reason we took this little detour was to put in perspective how far we have come, yet how little. So from the ancient Greeks to modern America in the 1800s to the 21st century abortion care, it's been a tumultuous ride for women. And if there's one thing we
0: can emphasize in this episode, it is that knowledge is power. You know, there's this famous phrase that was coined by Carol Hanisch in 1969 in her pivotal essay on the women's liberation movement. The personal is political. It was a controversial statement then, and it's a controversial statement still, but the message rings true. What matters deeply to us, whether that is our body autonomy or religious views, is certainly political in some way, regardless of whether in the United States or elsewhere, and this still remains a divisive topic to this day. Although the practice of obstetrics and gynecology have changed over the past several hundreds of years, there was still an overarching theme that when it comes to medical decisions for a woman's body, the choice does not lie only with her. So let's touch back on the history of women's reproductive care as it relates to contraception, abortion, and sexual rights. And we'll start with the legal evolution of this in the 21st century United States.
1: So up and until 1918, it was illegal for people to use contraception in the United States. Margaret Sanger, a nurse, and a birth control activist and sex educator, and the inspiration behind Planned Parenthood, actually, was charged under New York law for disseminating contraception information. She appealed and was able to have her conviction reversed on the grounds that contraceptive devices could legally be promoted for the cure and prevention of disease. Now, although this movement was met with great resistance, the efforts opened up the conversation to birth control and women's rights in the reproductive health. Now, Mary Ware Dennett was another woman's rights activist who played a pivotal role in overturning the Comstock laws, which prohibited the distribution of sex education information. Now, she was fined for her work in distributing sex education material in the 1920s and was able to appeal her conviction in 1928, thereby allowing public education of sexual health, another breakthrough in women's health and public health policy. Now, although these initial attempts at access to contraception and birth control were met with great resistance, the conversations, you know, started setting the stage for future generations to be able to have open conversations regarding previously taboo subjects.
0: And it wasn't even until later on in the 1960s that the introduction of the birth control pill allowed women to actually impede pregnancy or stop pregnancy by their own choice. This is just 60 years ago, a pivotal moment in women's choice in their own body. Now, although there had been great opposition by many religious institutions in several states to prevent women from using birth control pills, it took a Supreme Court decision to allow the pill to be accessible to women, both single and married, which was another breakthrough in women's health in the 1970s. Fast forward, it wasn't until as recently as 2012... That the US Department of Health and Human Services established that all private insurance providers are required to provide contraceptive coverage to women without a copay or deductible. So, just 10 years ago, another game changer in removing obstacles to basic contraception. But even that was challenged a couple years later by Hobby Lobby on the basis of religious freedom. And despite the groundbreaking work of Margaret Sanger and many other women, there is still much debate and constant changes in the legality of the nuances of contraception. Currently, as of 2022, President Joe Biden signed an executive order which directs that the Department of Health and Human Services expand access to contraceptives and requests that the Federal Trade Commission protect patients' reproductive health privacy.
1: So we covered the history of contraception briefly, and we're now going to touch upon the controversial subject of abortion. Abortion. Now, abortion is a whole other hurdle in the fight of women's reproductive rights, and there are many nuances to this topic, including legal, religious, and medical. So we're going to do our best to objectively break down the topic with a medical lens. Abortion is a controversial issue, and we want to acknowledge that the following is an attempt to objectively break down the history of the issue. So buckle up. Okay, So technically speaking, abortion has existed in North America since the European colonization. The practice was not always illegal or controversial. There have been documented methods of performing abortion early in pregnancy as early as the 1800s, and by British common law, it was legal as long as fetal movements were not felt, which typically occur around 14 to 20 weeks of gestation, basically around four months and beyond. So generally, it was dependent on whether the woman was feeling the fetus and at her own discretion. Upon U.S. independence, most U.S. states continued to apply common law to abortion, which used fetal movement as the marker after which abortion will be illegal. The state of Connecticut was the first to legally regulate abortion in 1821, and outlawed abortion outright after-fetal movement, and many states followed suit over the next several decades into the late 1800s. Now, these laws were initially made to protect women from real and or perceived risks of medical intervention in the form of abortion. Some of these laws punished not only the doctor, but also the woman who hired the physician, but they were rarely prosecuted. Many factors played a role in the evolution of anti-abortion laws, including physicians themselves, which, as a reminder, were still mostly men. And initially, physicians were the leading advocates for abortion criminalization laws. But one of the reasons why may surprise you. So medicine was evolving fast during this time, and many leading physicians of the nation were attempting to standardize the medical profession and advocate for medically trained physicians to deliver medical care. During a time in which many non-medical professionals were still practicing medicine, including abortion care. And many of the abortion providers were actually women. So they were considered untrained and not members of medical societies, and therefore physicians saw them as a nuisance to public health, but also as competition. This led many physicians to endorse anti-abortion laws with the medical justification of the Hippocratic Oath to defend the sanctity of life. Okay, so that's a lot of different layers to this complex topic, as you can tell which makes it even more
0: challenging to look at the nuances of abortion care as a whole. So, continuing. Despite medical campaigns to end abortion, many women, including midwives, continued the practice of abortion into the 20th century. Some estimates, including from a 1978 book by James Moore, state that 15 to 35 percent of all pregnancies ended in abortion during the late 19th century. And it's important to note that the women who were getting abortions were changing. Before the 19th century, most abortions were for unmarried women. But over time, increasingly, abortions were also for married women, of which over half already had at least one child. And this was worrisome for many conservative male physicians, especially in the setting of the evolving women's rights movements, including the suffrage movement. So initially, the anti-abortion movement was mostly backed by physicians, and specifically male physicians, but this too changed over time. And in fact, religious groups were not particularly active within this movement during that time. Abortion continued to be a felony in all states until the early 1900s, but this did not deter women's health advocates, including Margaret Sanger, to advocate for women's rights and promote safe abortions and bodily autonomy for women. And abortion continued to grow in number as the century progressed. By the 1930s, licensed physicians performed up to 800,000 abortions a year. Then, by
1: 1967, Colorado became the first state to decriminalize abortion in cases of rape, incest, or in pregnancies that would lead to permanent physical disability of the mother. Similar laws followed in California, Oregon, and North Carolina. In 1970, Hawaii became the first state to legalize abortions at the request of the woman. And New York repeated its 1830 law and allowed abortions up to the 24th week of pregnancy. A law in Washington, D.C., which allowed abortion to protect the life or health of the woman, was actually challenged in the Supreme Court in 1971. But the court upheld the law deeming that health meant psychological and physical well-being essentially allowing abortion to continue in Washington, D.C. for the health of the mother. That was an important distinction that will be pivotal in future legal cases. What is considered health of the mother? Is it just physical or also mental
0: and psychological? By the end of 1972, 13 states had a law similar to that of Colorado. While Mississippi allowed abortion in cases of rape or incest only, and then Alabama and Massachusetts allowed abortions only in cases where the woman's physical health was endangered. In order to obtain abortions during this period, women would often travel from state to state where abortion was illegal to one that was legal. The legal position prior to Roe v. Wade was that abortion was illegal in 30 states without exception and legal under certain circumstances in 20 states. In January 1973, the US Supreme Court invalidated all of these laws and set guidelines on the availability of abortion for the country. The decision allowed abortions to be done as freely as they were before the 1800s. It also established the right of a privacy of a woman. It also established a definitive trimester framework for which the first trimester of pregnancy was defined as a complete 12 weeks and states were prohibited from banning abortion in the first trimester. But it did allow states to impose increasing restrictions or even outright bans after the first 12 weeks. The court ruled this on the basis of right of privacy in the United States, and the right of a person is not to be encroached by the state. The Supreme Court did recognize a right to abortion in all cases, stating, quote, State regulation protective of fetal life after viability thus has both logical and biological justifications. If the state is interested in protecting fetal life after viability, it may go so far as to proscribe, or forbid, abortion during that time, except when it is necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. End quote. The Supreme Court stated that a right to privacy existed and included the right to have an abortion. The court found that a mother had a right to abortion until viability, a point to be determined by the abortion doctor. Now, Currently, the term viability is quite controversial, as there are mixed medical and religious interpretations of the word viability. After viability, a woman can obtain an abortion for health reasons, which the court defined broadly to include psychological well-being. A central issue in the Roe v. Wade case and in the wider abortion debate in general is whether human life begins at conception, at birth, or at some point in between. The court declined to make an attempt at resolving this issue, writing, We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins, when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus. The judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. The justices chose to point out that historically, under English and American common law, and statutes, quote, the unborn have never been recognized as a person in the whole sense, end quote. And therefore, these fetuses were not legally entitled to the protection afforded to the right of life, specifically in the 14th Amendment. And rather than asserting that human life begins at any specific point, the court declared that the state has a compelling interest in protecting potential life at the point of viability. So that was a lot to take in.
1: Yeah, so let's pause here for a moment. You know, we've covered so much in regards to women's rights, but that is just so powerful. The fact that the Supreme Court was able to point out that there is so much complexity to this issue that even medical professionals can't seem to agree. And therefore, who are they to determine the exact right and wrong? It honestly just speaks so deeply to the fact that this is not a black or white issue. There's so many layers and layers to each and every case of any woman who chooses to get an abortion, many of which are often based on socioeconomic reasons. We just don't know enough to paint the whole picture with one stroke of a brush. There's just so much gray to this issue. And really, you know, every person has their own understanding and perception of it based on their own personal lens. And that's what we need to think about. And that's what's so hard for many people to understand that each person has their own view based on their own understanding of the world and
0: their own experiences, and we do have to respect that. As a person who enjoys reading about social psychology, I really do feel that we could do better as a society to really give each other that basic understanding, that we do not know everything about each person's unique situation based on our limited information about them. I hope we can continue to give each other that respect And know that we as individual people are an accumulation of our own unique experiences, which mold our individualized opinions and decisions on many delicate topics. And with this nuanced segue, let's move to the current state of abortion in the United States. On June twenty-fourth, 2022, the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade based on the concept that the right to abortion cannot be found in the U.S. Constitution. This major decision allowed trigger laws to go into effect in 13 states, which effectively banned abortions immediately in those states. The overturning of Roe v. Wade ended protection of abortion rights by the United States Constitution and allowed individuals to regulate any aspect of abortion not prevented by federal law.
1: So this is an ever-evolving
0: situation,
1: and I'm sure we'll see more to come over the next several years. There are just so many variables in the landscape and the future of healthcare. But if there's one thing we can emphasize again, it's that knowledge is power. So we encourage all of our listeners to be empowered in their own medical decision making and to stay informed of their medical care. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of The Heart Podcast.
0: We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at The Female Pain Docs for more content. Send us an email at The female pain Docs at Gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our
1: website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.